now time for a safe space with Dr. Anne. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This month, we've been exploring the topic of substance abuse and the impact particularly on families and kids. My guest tonight is Ronnie Katz, and the subject we'll be talking about is substance abuse prevention programs here in the city of Portland, Maine. Ronnie is the program coordinator for substance abuse prevention for the city of Portland, their public health division. She is also in long-term recovery herself. She happens to be a musician in an acoustic duo band called Broadband. She plays lead guitar. She sings, Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Ronnie, I want to ask you, how did you first get interested in this subject? Well, I did substance abuse prevention work in New York for eight years. um, And that was actually prior to getting into recovery. But I was already on the road to wanting to be in recovery. Um, Actually, I... I would say during those eight years, that was my path. And I just knew that was where I needed to be. And I was drawn into this whole profession to help kids who are having problems like the ones that I experienced when I was growing up. Um, and even though I was still at the point where I I was w- winding down and I wasn't in, my, in recovery yet, I knew I could share something with them and I had something to give them. Uh-huh. And would you at the time have identified yourself as someone who was struggling with it yourself or not? I knew I struggled with it, but I didn't know I was an addict. Uh-huh. And would you be willing to, how did, how did, you, dis- how did you decide that you were? Uh, it wasn't a, a decision as much as a feeling of knowing. Uh, I, uh-huh. You know, I knew I had a problem. Yeah. Um, I had gotten into a situation where I got, had gotten sick in, oh, early 1990, and I stopped using for a few weeks. And I said, hmm, I actually have some clarity. My mind feels different. I feel different. Maybe this isn't such a bad thing. And for the next seven, seven and a half years, I tried to stop using several substances and finally got to the point where um, I realized I couldn't do it alone. But it took a move for me to go to, to do what they say is a geographic cure. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee from Queens, New York. And uh-huh. when I got there, um, I said, gee, you know, I don't have to use anymore. I left all my drugs behind. I guess I'm cured. Um, But then my friends came to visit, and I I realized I had a problem. And then I started getting to the point where I would use, you know, I I would drink because it wasn't my drug of choice, but I needed to do something to feel like I was getting that buzz that I was missing. And Mm -hmm. it scared me because I said, wow, I've moved. My life has come together. I probably am living in the best place I ever lived. I had this great job. I had a career job, changed my life around Everything on paper was wonderful, but I had this incredible abyss within me, a mm-hmm. hole so big I didn't know how to fill it. And uh, I was online, actually. I had just gotten into the chat room in, on AOL at the time. It was in 97, and I was talking to somebody online who was in recovery. And she was saying things that made so much sense, and she convinced me to, you know, to try a program of recovery. And when I went, I knew that's where I belonged. Uh, so you kind of identified with her. You were like, oh, I get that. Yeah. I really get that. That resonates inside me. I, and I just knew what she said was true. And I kept saying, gee, you have a way with words. But turned out it wasn't her words. It was the programs. So, uh-huh. And, and it became my story. words. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. It's almost like some part of you knew that you were needing the very thing that you were trying to give other people. Yeah. I, I would say that's very true. Um, but I was in such denial, I wasn't willing to 
to get the help myself. Yeah. So I was, I guess I was getting help vicariously. Do you think you became more effective at substance abuse prevention after you were in recovery? Um, yes. Uh, although I, I think everything that I, I did with those kids I worked with, um, I think I gave everything of myself and I think I really did help them, but I, I think I could have even been more effective had I been in recovery. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you got clearer inside yourself somehow. I found my soul. Mm-hmm. I'd lost it. Uh-huh. That's a strong thing to say. Yeah. It feels appealing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's your story. And are, are you still doing this work because you really want to help other kids that are in some, that are also feeling a hole inside? Yeah, this is my way of giving back. Um, I had so much given to me so freely, and I had to stay out of this profession for five years because I wasn't ready to go back. Mm-hmm. And I came back, uh, I went to Nashville, I lived there for five years. I, I was the um, director of an agency that ran after school centers for kids in Nashville's inner city neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And when I came back here, um, it was put in my path. And I, I finally, I had this chance to give back, and I took it. And mm-hmm. every day of my job is a joy. I, I've been there for over six years, and I, I love what I do. And I feel like it's a gift. Yeah, so tell me more. What do you do? Well, it, it varies at times, but no. Um, I coordinate the programs for the city's prevention, uh, substance abuse prevention programs. And um, basically, we have different initiatives that we carry out. Um, some of them are aimed at youth. We have the One Main, One Portland Coalition. One with, Main, One Portland? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, okay. And it's a group of providers, for the most part, who get together, share ideas, and work together um, to try to offer programs that we feel will help youth uh, to not use. Like we offer a program or several programs in the, in the schools. Uh, we'll, what we do is we're the bridge. You know, we go out, we get the funding, and we channel it into the, say, a school, a community center, or another group, or another agency. Uh-huh. And we plant the seeds, and then they take it from there. And so what kinds of things are going on in schools that, here in Maine that you think are effective? Uh, one of the programs that we got to start, and it's still going on, is called uh, Reconnecting Youth. Okay. And it's an evidence-based model program. And basically, uh, it's, it's a program where uh, young people get to go to a class either every day or several times a week and really communicate and get to know themselves and learn about coping skills and uh, get into the things that cause them to feel the way they do and learn you know, how to be responsible for who they are and, and maybe change the way they feel. Isn't that great? So what you're saying from this is that a class that has to do with knowing yourself and emotional well-being mm-hmm. is substance abuse prevention. Right. And dropout prevention, it addresses suicide prevention, a lot of behaviors. Yes, it's sort of prevention of everything. Yeah. And uh, Deering High School offered it. They had three classes this uh, past fall. Um, and these are kids who maybe wouldn't have graduated uh, uh-huh. Or had come from families where there may have been some issues and problems that they were having trouble getting past. Uh, we had it at Portland High School, too. And they've continued the program even after the funding has ended. Isn't that great? You know, in my work as a psychiatrist, I often think, why isn't it that in schools they're not teaching people basic emotional well-being skills like how to talk about feelings, how to work through conflict. Mm-hmm. But you're saying this is, what you're, this is what's happening. Uh, that's one of the things. And we just got funded by the Office of Substance Abuse to start programs in uh, all three levels of school uh, in Portland. So we're going to be running three programs this fall. Two of them will start, one we will train uh, the staff for. So when you say all three levels of school, do you mean elementary and middle school as mm-hmm. well? In a similar kind of thing where the kids yes. are learning? 
uh, also evidence-based, but the kind of pro experiential programs. Uh, and when I say experiential, I'm think I'm talking more emotional and yes. um, and just the type of thing where where kids are really taught about um, behavior and, and and to understand their behavior and their values and and how it all translates. So when you say taught about behavior, what do you mean? Help me. Give me an example. Um, well, it helps somebody maybe in a situation where they talk about uh, refusal skills. Um, yeah. You know, what, what, are, what are they up against with their peers? Wh what can peer pressure do to them? Uh, what kind of situations does it put them in? It, it helps them relate to how they really feel about other kids. Yeah. So that, let's talk about peer pressure because I think that's a huge issue for mm -hmm. teenagers with any kind of substance. What do you, how do you help kids learn to refuse skills? I mean, teach me what, if I was a teenager and I was saying, um, you know, everybody's passing around a joint, what am I supposed to do? How would you help me if I was in that program? Well, you know, when I used to do it in New York, and I can only relate to that experience um, okay. because I'm not working directly with kids anymore. Right, you're an administrator now. I'm an administrator yeah. now. Um, but, you know, the thing we would do is we, we would look at the root issue. It's not only, not only that you, people are using, but why? Why do people use? And what can you do instead that's more positive? Um, we practice refusal skills. Talk about um, if you were at a party and someone offered you a joint, what are your options? How could, you know, how could you relate to it? And and that includes I could take it and I could smoke it. Mm -hmm. um, I could say no, I I'm, I'm not into it. I could get up and leave. I could. We talk about creating safe um, connections so that maybe if someone's at a party and they're not comfortable, they know they can call home and someone will pick them up. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we give them an out. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine just told me her teenage son said, "Mom, what do I do?" I go to a party and they're drinking. And she said, call me and I'll pick you up. Right. What an easy solution. Right. All right. So part of it is helping the parents get involved in that. Right. I mean, kids yeah. need to know that there's an out there because very often, you know, they'll get in a situation and they don't really want to be in it, but they don't know how to get out of it. So we try to teach them ways they can get out of it. But and they feel don't know how to get out of it and save face. They don't, they don't want to look uncool. Yeah. You don't want to, you know, look exactly. Yeah. Right. So that okay. So that's one of the programs you're running, and it sounds mm -hmm. like that's going to hit kids of all ages. Yeah. I will. It'll be the Lions Quest program in the elementary school, and it's going to be over at Reiki. Okay. Um, Lyman Moore Middle School is going to have the Life Skills Training Program, and that's going to be 190 kids, the entire sixth grade. Wonderful. And um, and that goes all three years. It, it follows them through middle school, and then we're going to have what we call they call the Cast Program in the high school. And that's very similar to Reconnecting Youth. It's by the same developers. So when you say these are evidence-based, what you mean is these have been researched, studied, and proven to reduce the rates of substance abuse among mm -hmm. teenagers. And, and the, um, the variables and the factors that lead to substance abuse. You know, we, we really look at the behavior. We, we like to, to see people make changes in, in the different um, issues that, that get them there. Tell me what you mean. Well, you know, I could, again, I, I relate a lot of stuff to, to my, own, my own journey. And, yeah. you know, when I look at the fact that I'm an addict and that I used, it's more important for me to understand why. Yes. And we try to help people understand why they might use, why they do use, um, and why, if they choose to, why they, they may want to get onto another path. And so, if it's not too personal a question, what did you come to understand about why you used? Well... There's not one reason, you know, I, I, I worked a program and I, and I wrote a lot about it and um, I use for a, a, many, many reasons. Um, one of them is I come from a family where there's addiction and, yeah. and mental illness and I truly believe the two are so connected.
Yes. Um, that it's important to know, to know that. I mean, if I had understood growing up that the addicts in my family could affect me, I might have had a better um, chance at recognizing that I was getting into that world. Right. Um, I used also because I had an unhappy home life. My parents fought all the time, like a lot of kids. Yeah. And it felt a lot better to go, you know, and go out and, and numb my feelings rather than deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, many some ways, in some ways, I think of that as probably the most common mm-hmm. thing that I hear is that there's some pain I can't bear to feel directly, so I have to yeah. numb out of it. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, and for a while that works. And then, right. then all of a sudden you turn around, it's 20 years later, and, and everyone else stopped, and I'm still doing it. Right. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have addiction unless it was temporarily effective, presumably. There's a reason why it has so much power. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, when you, so knowing from your own experience and answering that question, why was so important for you. You're helping kids think about why they might be vulnerable or what they might be trying to get away from? I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of kids are in that situation where maybe there's a lot of pain in their life and maybe they don't feel like they, they fit in. I mean, you know, I always made myself fit in. I kind of drew the attention to me. I'm a performer, so I liked being the center. But mm-hmm. self-centeredness is the core of addiction. Um, I want to come back to that. My guest today is Ronnie Katz. Mm-hmm. This is Dr. Ann at Safe Space on WMPG. And we're talking about substance abuse prevention among adolescents right here in Portland, Maine. So that's a very provocative comment. Self-centeredness is at the core of addiction. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, you know, one of the things we learn in recovery is that um, uh, we, make, we make the world about us when we're addicted because... I mean, when you think of the, the family, the alcoholic or the addicted family, that person is the center of the family and everybody else is centered around them and has to tailor their life to them. Because so much chaos is being stirred up or so many things aren't being attended to? And they demand it. I mean, when you look at, at, at the roles of the, you know, and the, the, the typical roles that people talk about, like um, the hero child, the, um, right. you know, the scapegoat, the, um, the mascot, yes. um, and the... the um, I'm I'm thinking of the fourth one, which is uh, usually the lost child. The lost the child, family. yeah, and then of course the enabler. Um, you know, they all center around that addict, mm-hmm. and that's truly the core of the disease. I mean, all I could think, you know, I would think about was where will I I get my next, um, you know, my next fix or right. So it becomes all about me and getting what I need, and yeah, and my whole world, everything. It was always, it's because of them that I feel this way. I always blamed everybody else, but I learned three words in recovery. It's not them. Uh-huh. As in, it's what I called making the U-turn. <laughs> Coming <laughs> like back that. to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. How is this about me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful to hear that. It's a hard thing for someone to hear, though, that it's self-centered. I mean, that's a, that's a hard word. You can't really tell someone else that. You only have to arrive there yourself, it seems to me. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case. Um, but after a while, when you can look back in retrospect, and, 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 and it wasn't long after getting into recovery that I started to realize that. Mm-hmm. What's the antidote to that, to being self-centered? How do you move away from that? Um, it depends upon your own personal beliefs. For me, it was giving of myself to others. Um, being more centered towards other people and 
being in touch with myself, but not being obsessed with myself. Uh-huh. Um, and for me, it was about finding a higher power and being more centered around that higher power. Uh-huh. Finding a way to be connected to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to shift gears now and talk a little bit more about what you're doing here in Portland. Um, okay. So you've told us a little bit about these programs in the schools, which sound wonderful. What, what other, you mentioned there were several other programs that you're connected to. Uh, Tell yeah, me about more of them. I get excited about my programs. Yeah. Um, well, the first one, which I have such a strong feeling about, is the Overdose Prevention Project. And that was the program that brought me here. Um, and so one that um, I was working somewhere else when I, came, I first came to Maine. And I kept seeing the headlines in 2003 um, about all of the overdoses, the fatal overdoses from 2002 and that they were still pretty high and that 2002 had been a, a record year. There were 30, 38 uh, fatal overdoses, opiate overdoses in Portland. Mm, in one when, year? Uh, in 2002, yeah. Wow, that's and that very was, high. And was huge. And I kept saying, I'd see the headlines and I'd say, oh, I wish I could work, you know, in mm. that program. But there wasn't a program yet. I found that out. And... I interviewed, and actually it was, it was still 2002, come to think of it, because I, I had moved here then. Um, and then I was interviewed and in 2003, in January, I was hired to coordinate the Overdose Prevention Project. Yeah, what, is it, what does it do? It basically gets out there, it's, and what we've always done is we spread the word. Um, we go to where people are and where they may be at risk, and it's hard to say one group of people is more at risk than another because it, it spans all walks of life. But we get the word out. We teach people about the signs of overdose. Um, we get them to talk about um, the things that go on in their lives. We have a group uh, that does education and support. Uh-huh. And it helps people um, talk about why they use. Because we believe the first way to prevent overdose is to address using. Um, and we do our recovery resource fair. We do a lot of trainings and workshops. And we just we raise awareness. So mostly you're helping people realize that they are at risk for overdose and how to note the signs so that they can intervene quickly? Exactly. Um, and it's not about shame, blame, or guilt tripping. It's about just knowing what to do. So about not being so lives. Af- yeah, not being so afraid to call 911. Yeah. On that moment, we're going to take a quick musical break. We'll be right back. guest today is Ronnie Katz. This is Dr. Ann on Safe Space, and we're talking about substance abuse prevention, especially for uh, teenagers here in Portland, Maine. Ronnie's been talking about the Overdose Prevention Project, but I want to hear, there are a couple of other really important projects that are going on right here at home that I want to hear about. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what's going on for pregnant women? Well, we found out a while ago that there were a lot of pregnant women out there um, who were struggling with opiate addiction, and really needed services, and many wanted again to recovery, but didn't have the, um, the finances or they didn't have people to watch the children they already had 
and they didn't have the support. So we formed something called the Women's, the Portland Women's Task Force. Um, it came about after we heard a DHHS worker at a meeting we were at say how frustrated she was because um, she had just been with a woman who was eight and a half months pregnant who was using Subutex, um, or actually Suboxone, uh, off the street because she didn't have a plan, and she had a four-and-a-half-year-old child, and she really wanted to get into treatment but had no way to do it. So we formed the task force. Fourteen of us met two weeks later, and now we have over 50 people in it. We meet at May Medical Center. Um, the nurses are involved. We're about to do a... Not uh, 50 patients, but 50 professionals. 50 caregivers. professionals, yeah, uh-huh. caregivers. And people have started to work together. Um, that particular woman did get services. She actually um, got into treatment, got into an apartment. Um, and we have people working together who in the past probably wouldn't have connected. That's great. So you're like the liaison who brings people together mm-hmm. so that new things can happen. Exactly. Yeah, and it was inspired by one woman's particular predicament. And we just said we may be able to help. Yeah. And do you know how many women have been able to benefit from people coming together like that? Um, you know, we don't actually have numbers, um, but it's been more about the professionals connecting their services. Um, we'll probably never know how many. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we look at, we, we kind of, we measure it more through the, the professionals um, because it, they reach out so far you can't really tell. Right, the ripple effect of their connecting to each other and being able to collaborate. Exactly. may have consequences you can't even foresee. And we're about to launch a new campaign um, to teach people about um, medica- medication-assisted treatment during pregnancy um, and the benefits of it. Tell me a little bit about that campaign. Well, uh, we have some posters that are going to go out with resources and um, a brochure that's going to basically teach providers and um also their clients and patients, that if you're pregnant, if you're opiate addicted, instead of using drugs from the street, it's a lot safer for your baby to get on methadone. And um, that's been proven as far as Subutex, which is a form of Suboxone. Um, there's, they're still working on a lot of that research, but from what is generally believed, that's also considered a much safer choice. Safer not only because you don't have the street contaminants, but safer because the child isn't going into repeated withdrawals. Uh, although the baby does go through withdrawal. Um, at the end. At the, you know, after the baby's yeah. born, but at least it's monitored. Um, the hospital knows what to expect, and it's not as severe. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right, that's a hard thing probably for mothers to swallow. It is. And, um, you know, we, we recognize the need. A lot of the nurses we spoke with said people really need to know this. The methadone clinic said people need to know it. So we all got together and we put a campaign together and mm-hmm. we hope to release it soon. We'd hope to have it in time for Mother's Day, but we didn't make it. Uh-huh. So this campaign is to reach out specifically to women in this predicament, mm-hmm. letting them know that they have choices that are safer for them? Yes. And also for their families to see it because it's very easy to shame somebody after, you know, and, and judge them. Right. When they get into treatment, especially you see a pregnant woman, immediately that image um, right. you know, stays with you. Right. So the pressure for pregnant women is to be on nothing mm-hmm. instead of being on something like methanol, which would be safer than someone who's trying to be on nothing but, in fact, is relapsing repeatedly. Right. We're right. trying to destigmatize them as much as possible. Right. Because the statistics are if you're trying to go cold turkey off of opiates, the relapse is going to be very, very common if you're on your own. Absolutely. So that's why it makes sense. And that could be so harmful to the baby, the shock of it. Yeah, the sort of on again, off again. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The stigma of it, I imagine, is a really big thing. What's your strategy for combating stigma? Education. 
and letting people know that addiction is not a moral deficiency, it's a brain disease. Yes, yeah, say more about that, because I think that message could bear some repeating. Well, well, you know, the most common thing people say, I find, is why can't you just stop? Yes. And it's not that easy. Um, I know from my own personal experience that when I was using, especially the last part of my using, I was using it totally against my will. I didn't want to use, but I couldn't, I didn't know I had a choice. Um, and it wasn't until I was able to get some distance between using and not using that I was able to know I, I do have a choice. Um, but when you're in the throes of it, it just, it overtakes you. And it's Say been proven... more about that, because I think that's very hard for people to understand. It was totally against your will. Like, bring us into that experience, what that was like for you. Okay, um... I'll just I'll give an example that I think will illustrate it. During the final years of my using, I would I would come home with my drug of choice and sit down and I'd use it and all of a sudden I would get first I'd get elated for a second and then I'd feel this terrible feeling of being let down and, and all of a sudden I'd hear a big loud sigh. It would be my dog. And hmm. she would give this sigh and look at me like, Why why are you doing this? <laughs> and I kept that image all through my recovery. I have kept that image when in the beginning when I wanted to use I think of that that scene that ever how many times that happened where I swore I wouldn't use again And yet I'd still go and get more and use So you felt helpless. Yeah, before. I didn't know how to stop. I needed mm. tools It's very powerful the sigh of your dog because I th you know dogs I think probably you're the best source of unconditional love on the planet, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the sigh of the dog was didn't have the judgment or the shame that you might get from a family member saying right. who was so disappointed in you. But you felt like from this loving presence, your dog, that was just so sad. And that and that was my bookmark for and a that long touched time. Your heart. But you know, and the the whole thing too is the shame, it's it's greater within the person themselves. More so the judgment, it, it is so much more harsh within yourself than anybody else. Say you know, people, more about that. Well, people think that when, so, you know, people who are using, that, like, they don't really care or, or they very often will judge them, but they don't realize that inside we are hurting so badly. I mean, the awful feeling like, why am I doing this? Why am I such a bad person? Mm. And when that's not really it at all, it's a disease. Right. Presumably that feeling of shame and that feeling of being a bad person actually makes you more vulnerable to continuing to use. Right. Right, because it's such an unbearable plate. None of us can bear to feel like we're a horrible person. You know, and I think the fact of the matter is, if it was so easy to just stop, we'd have very few people out there exactly. being addicted. By definition. You know, but if you look around, I mean, we were talking earlier, and I mean, just I want to make sure to mention that, you know, addiction or, and abuse is a very big problem, and... Um, it's gotten better in some areas, but we're still seeing a lot of prescription drug abuse. That seems to be rising. We're seeing a lot of cocaine abuse. Um, you know, there's still a lot of marijuana being smoked out there. Mm -hmm. uh, alcohol has come down somewhat, but that's also um, counterbalanced by the rise in, in prescription drug abuse. Yeah, so that's the place that you're really focusing your efforts. Uh, we're trying to. Again, it's about education and awareness um, for youth, for parents. Uh, the, I think that education is a tool, and yeah. if we can use it as such... Uh, we we want to send our youth out there armed with as many tools as possible. And so if you are a parent and you're worried that your child is abusing prescription drugs, what are the resources you have? What what, what do you advise parents to do in that situation? Uh, well, talk to other parents. Talk to professionals. Um, you know, addiction is not just an individual disease. It's a family disease. Get help for the whole family. Um, people don't normally just use because they just, you know, 
want to try it and forget and not worry about it. I mean, there's curiosity, but when someone continues to use, there's there's a serious problem there. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe combat it as a family. Um, mm-hmm. Be in the touch with your off child. the individual too that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. we all it's take a problem responsibility. Problem we all own here. And, yeah. and talk, talk about it. Um, I think it's really important people forget that. And also, I just want to remind parents, your medicine cabinet is, is the greatest source of drugs for your child. Key detail. So what do you think parents should do with that? Uh, go through their medicine cabinet, get rid of all substances that are no longer needed, and also monitor them. Um, you know, years ago, parents used to always monitor the liquor cabinet, but they forget to monitor the medicine cabinet. Seems like a word from the wise. (laughs) Ronnie, we're going to have to stop. It's been a pleasure to have you at Safe Space. If somebody wants to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Uh, They can call me at uh, 207-756-8116. They can go to the city website, which is uh, www.portlandmaine.gov, and go through the links of departments, health and human services, public health, or go directly to uh, substanceabuse.portlandmaine.gov. And that's Maine, M-A-I-N-E. Uh, yeah, spell it out. Yeah. With triple W in front. Great. Ronnie, it's been a pleasure. Thank Same you here. so much. Thank you for having me. My thanks again to Goober for mixing the sound and to Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. If you would like to contact me to get more information or to suggest a new topic for a show, email me at drannewmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., I'll be hosting Joe Morrissey talking about parents and substance abuse. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison. And this program is brought to you with listener donations and an underwriting grant from